Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to SFF Addicts, a bi-weekly panel podcast featuring writers from fanfiatic.com, authors, publishing professionals, bloggers, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and today's episode is my interview with author T.R. Knapper. T.R. is the award-winning author of the Neon Leviathan short story collection and his brand new debut novel, 36 Streets. We had an enlightening chat, exploring his writing, the history and heart of the cyberpunk genre, Southeast Asia as a setting, imagining believable fictional futures, and much, much more. All right, now on to my interview with T.R. Knapper. Here we go. All right, welcome everybody to another author chat on the podcast. And today I have the pleasure of chatting with T.R. Knapper. He's the award-winning author of the Neon Leviathan's short story collection, which I have right here with that oh, awesome very good. cover. And mm. 36 Streets, his debut novel, which hit stores in Australia today, January 18th, and the rest of the world on February 8th. Outside of writing, T.R. has also worked in international development in Mongolia, Laos, and Vietnam designing and managing education programs for children in remote areas. And now he's back in Australia after many years of working and living abroad, writing amazing cyberpunk fiction. So happy to have you, <laughs> TR, and how you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, before we dig into the interview, I want to congratulate you on the release of 36 Streets. How do you feel, and uh, how's, the, how's the road to release and publication been? Good, but we should we should let your viewers know that you it is five in the morning where you are and nine at night where I am. But I look so, fresh, man. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> five in the morning, you look fantastic. Uh, what was the, I already forgot the question? This is not a great start. What was the question? Something about my novel, Thirty Six Streets. <laughs> yeah, how's the how's the the road to release been? Oh, how's the road to release been horrible? Um, the 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 road to the last stages before uh, publication are exciting, but they're also enormously stressful because you the is this is this what you're getting at that those that the the stages up to um yeah this is what I've I've been obsessing over lately so I'm just gonna mm-hmm. carry on about it but it's it's um it's a debut novel and you have to it's with Titan UK and you have to. One of the things you have to do, for example, is go get uh, author quotes. So you have to go and ask yeah. a bunch of famous authors and say, uh, hey, you don't know me, but do you want to spend <laughs> 10 hours of your life reading this unknown cyberpunk author? And and so you have to do a lot of begging bowl stuff. You have to agonize. I did. I do anyway. You, you have your um, the editing stages, structural edits, proof uh structural edits copy edits and the proofread and where i agonized over every minor change and occasionally a major change of course that the publisher requested uh and then you have early uh, uh, uh reviewer copies which you got one um and that's been very positive so far but it, you know you might get a couple of people who don't get it and then you 
you go into the you know paroxysms of self doubt and you think oh what, 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 what you know and so it's it's and I, and you know we'll have to see how it goes i hope it goes well but um the lead up to publication is is exciting and it's fantastic to um like get i don't have the um i don't have the uh final final copy of the book i got the arc like you got yeah but just to have a book in your hands that with your name on it with such a fantastic cover, yeah. um, that's an awesome feeling. But the, by the same token, yeah, the, the, it's it's an intense process where you're kind of not really writing either. It's like an intense process of several months where you're just perfecting, perfecting, and then self-promoting, self-promoting. And, um, uh, and your, so your creative brain is in standstill for a little while, I imagine. Yeah, and you and you feel like you're missing your writing too, and your creative brain mm-hmm. does. I mean, you, editing it does allow some opportunities for that, but um, yeah, uh, you're in this uh, no man's land before publication. Um, but it's just it's also yeah, but for all my whinging, it's you know I've got a debut novel coming out. It's fantastic. And one more thing about. <laughs> <laughs> About um, about uh, your first novel is, you of course you're going to see what people have to say, mm-hmm. but the you know everyone's like, don't read reviews, Tim. I'm like, what? Don't read reviews. Obviously, I'm going to read reviews. Don't look at Goodreads. Oh yeah, who on earth, what debut novelist in the history of Goodreads has not looked at Goodreads? Exactly. I agree with that advice, and if you've got. If your listeners, any of them, are wanna be novelists, never <laughs> don't, don't look at Goodreads. But I do think you should have to. Uh, I, I have to say, I think it's not a bad idea to look at reviews because, mm-hmm. especially if it's a thoughtful and um, uh, intelligent reader, I mean, it's it's interesting what they got and what they didn't get, yeah. and then what you put in there and what they, the things that you might have been subconscious and that they took from it. Um, I am going on a bit of a tangent here, but I think that this whether or not to read reviews is kind of an interesting question, especially when you're a writer at the start of your career. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are, I will say, a lot of uh, reviewers like myself, um, people who are doing uh, booktube channels and stuff like that, who do post their reviews on Goodreads. And like you say, those, Mm. I think, do have some inherent value in it uh, up up to a certain point. but it all it all depends on your personal perspective but i feel like you could like you say take some some useful nuggets there but you could also get lost in the mire uh well that's the trick of being uh, i think for 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 when you i think probably for any writer but especially when you're starting out one of the hardest skills to learn is cuz you get critiqued all the time what do you when do you take that on board and change and when do you believe in yourself um and i know i know that for example i've had stories where i've believed in myself and got some vicious re- uh, critiques from read from beta readers and decided no i'm going to stick with it and some of my, my most successful stories in neil leviathan anyway got some of the most diabolical feedback yeah uh one of them i just i won the orealis award for best novella um uh, when was this last year? So quite recently, and that was for a for a um, 
some many people said fantastic things about the novella, but I got a couple of I got one in particular very harsh sort of feedback, and that's but so that's the difficult thing as a writer is 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 that enough self belief that you can um, know when to ignore it exactly, but enough self awareness <laughs> that you know when to take it on board. Yeah. That's a very fine line, and then to know that. Everything every other person says about your work is subjective. And so, like you say, you have to find yeah. that balance between do I take it on board or do I just ignore it? Mm. And when, when do I question my self-belief or when do I reinforce it based on what other people are saying? Yeah, yeah. it must be such a tricky, tricky thing. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's a skill. It's a writing skill, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, because I'm... I'm working on my my first novel at the moment and it's trying to find this this balance between um because i have i have uh, some friends that i do critique group with and mm. trying to find that balance between when do i fully absorb whatever my friend is saying uh and implement it into my work but when do i draw the line and say no i'm sticking to my guns I don't care what you hmm. said about this. Especially early in your career. Exactly. Especially early in your career because because you know, I don't know if you're horrible, <laughs> but I know most people, and certainly me, you're kind of horrible. Uh, and so you have to, you have to, it's very hard to know if you're doing a couple of things right. It's very hard to figure out what exactly they are. Yeah, exactly. Um, so before we dive into your writing, uh, I wanted to ask you a bit more about you as a person, if you can tell listeners, viewers, about um, you know, what was your relationship with reading or science fiction and fantasy growing up? Oh, okay, and uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, oh, I mean, I was a voracious reader. Um, uh, and when I was young, it was mainly fantasy. In fact, it was almost completely fantasy and science fiction. It was probably the very, the very standard type of fantasy novels for. For that time, which is like you know the Belgariad and uh, things like this, the Magician and and it, and uh, probably a lot more British authors back then um, in Australia were more prevalent. Whereas of course today it's dominated by American authors. So mainly mainly uh, sort of epic fantasy. Um, however, I do I did stumble across and science fiction, um, and but I did stumble across uh, Philip K. Dick. When I was uh, like twelve, maybe twelve or thirteen. That's a ripe age to get and, to get uh, introduced to Philip K. Dick. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was it was the the uh, bookstore clerk uh, knew what he was doing because I came in. I said, "Oh, I want something different. Um, I'm reading these sorts of novels. I want, yeah, I want to, I want a different experience." And so he gave me a Philip K. Dick. It was a collection of short stories, and that kind of blew my mind. Uh, you know. Living in a, a working class family in Australia, in when I was twelve, perhaps, and then reading Philip K. Dick, and so that was an amazing. I still, you know, remember being blown away when I read that. Uh, and then after that, in terms of my reading history, after that, uh, you know, the usual. I went through a literary stage where I read all the ones you're meant to read, and uh, that's fine. They're good. They're classics for a reason. Yeah. Like some of them, I quite like. Um, uh, and these days, I mean, as a as a writer, um, I kind of try to read everything. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of crime. Um, I, I read a lot of literary fiction. Um, 
probably one of the few things I don't read much of is cyberpunk <laughs> because I think this is I've seen heard other artists say this as well, but sometimes you don't want to read the specific subgenre you're writing in. Sometimes, not 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 all of them, but I find this I don't want to to um, almost be polluted in a way. Right. Like I want I have I have my cyberpunk world, and it's either worried that someone's I'm going to accidentally steal an idea, or maybe worried that I'm going to be reading. I'm like, oh god, this guy did it ten years ago. You know. <laughs> um, of course, I've read a lot still, but these days I tend to read. I haven't read much at all. Um, I have to say, uh, uh, like in terms of contemporary cyberpunk, a bit of Richard Morgan and so forth, but beyond that, not, I try to stay away from I think that's probably a good approach though, because yeah, like you say, you could be polluted and, um, a lot of the time, regardless of what we're reading, we unconsciously absorb so much information. And then later on, mm. you might just slap that on the page and, and someone will say, yeah, that was, that was there 10 years ago. Or you, yeah. you stole this idea from such and such. Um, Although the, the, the interesting thing is, though, that it's every now and again where I've done something, like I've had a couple of times, I remember I got this review once where someone's like, "He, this short story is just like so-and-so short story. And I went, oh, I've never read that. I don't know who's, I've never even, don't even know so-and-so. But I went and looked up so-and-so <laughs> and then read this short story. And I'm like, it's not like it at all. What are you talking about? But it's it was kind of military. There was drugs, and it was in the military. And like, well, it's not exactly the same. Was that was that the but, was that the story? Opium for Ezra. Yeah, yeah. I got accused of being very much like another. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want. To. <laughs> it was a fine story. Um, but it's not. It's not, it's not a copy because I never read him. <laughs> Exactly. Although once I had to, I read, I wrote this story. It's in the uh, this novella where, and this is not this isn't a fantastically original idea, but it was an idea of where you walk around and you have these ratings above you that people can see a political rating and a, a social rating, and you have neural implants, and so you can see you have kind of an augmented reality where you can see other things, see things in addition to reality. And one of the things is you see someone's political rectitude and their social rectitude and so again it's not a super original idea i mean china is kind of doing a version of that right now and in fact that's where i got the idea but then someone read it and they're like oh that's a black mirror episode i went ah and i went and watched the black mirror episode and it was it was really close and so i that was good though because i changed the technology Mm -hmm. so i'd come to the same conclusion as the Black Mirror writer, yeah. and then I watched his, his uh, I'm like, oh, but then I changed it in the story so it was sufficiently different, and it ended up being better. It ended up being a better idea, um, but I was kind of forced to make that change because I'd uh, 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 someone else had thought of it first. But in terms of that's my reading history. Is that what is that what that was the question? Yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna digress a lot in this conversation. It's all good, man. But you you brought up you brought up cyberpunk and and how you've purposefully sort of avoid uh modern cyberpunk just because that's what you write but um i wanted to dig in a little bit like what are your perspectives on where the genre has come from uh and where you think it's going in conjunction with how your uh writing itself is contributing to the advancement of the genre well where's it where it's come from uh i mean i say that i i don't read 
cyberpunk, but I certainly read all of its antecedents and I've thought about the origins of it a lot. And I did a PhD actually um, on on noir, neo-noir and cyberpunk, but outside of America. So I wanted to look at, I looked at it in Vietnam, uh, Hong Kong, Australia and uh, Japan. Uh, and in fact, 36 Streets, the novel came from a PhD. Uh, in Australia, the um, PhDs, you have an essay component, but you can do a creative component as well. And I wrote this novel um, uh, and it ended up being good enough that I managed to sell it to a traditional publisher. So. I was, I, even though I say I don't read a lot of contemporary cyberpunk, I've certainly thought about I've re- the origins of it and its antecedents and so mm-hmm. forth. So I, it, I trace it all the way back to hard-boiled fiction of the, like, 20s and 30s. Yeah. Hard-boiled fiction was, um, uh, it was, it emerged on the cusp of the Great Depression. It emerged. Um, uh, when during great periods of urbanization and so forth in the states, um, and it was kind of part of the reaction to modernity. So, yeah, so it was, it came about during rapid urbanization, the Great Depression, the Second World War, and the horrors of fascist Europe. And so that was the origins of hardboiled fiction, which came, it became film noir, which became neo-noir, and then on to cyberpunk. And if you look at the foundation, the twin foundational events of cyberpunk, that was Neuromancer by William Gibson and um, Blade Runner. Both of those, William Gibson and Ridley Scott, were hardboiled fiction fans and took ideas from Hammett and Raymond Chandler. And they put a lot of the stylistic elements and so forth are, of course, in those that book and that movie, but also a lot of the thematic concerns. Um, and if you look at uh, Blade Runner, you know, it's a movie about corruption, about staggering inequality, about giant corporations that are essentially running a society, about urban decay, multiculturalism. Um, uh, 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 extreme cl- conditions of the of the of climate, mm-hmm. and this is in what was that 1982 that was made. Yeah, and so in terms of if you look at the science fiction of 1982, the films being made, it's terrible when they when they trying to predict the future. You've got Logan's Run, and you've got people with silver costumes, you know, Jump and everything's suits. clean and neat. Yeah, yeah, jumpsuits. <laughs> then you've got Blade Runner. And it saw the future, yeah? It's, you could watch Blade Runner and that still looks like a modern film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of anachronisms in it, but overall that is a modern-looking film. Yeah. So I, in some ways I think that uh, cyberpunk has, in a way, has stayed true to the thematic concerns that run through noir and neo-noir. All the, all the way to the present day. But one of the big differences is we're living in a cyberpunk present. So all these things that they imagined exist now. We're doing this. We're, you're in Ecuador and I'm in Australia and we're having this conversation. We carry, well, I don't, I turn it off, but we carry Big Brother in our pockets with our smartphones. Exactly. We are measured and analysed 
and quantify out <laughs> yeah quantify <laughs> every day and where we go and what we buy and all our sexual preferences they know everything about us so we've got big brother in our pocket doing the sort of surveillance that Orwell could not have even have dreamed of. And it, by the way, I, I, I forgot to say that George Orwell was an influence on me as I was a reader. I said Philip K. Dick, but Orwell, especially his essays, but also, of course, 1984, had a big influence on me as well when I was, when I was a young man. But, yeah, we live in a cyberpunk present. We have disinformation campaigns. We have staggering inequality. We have some remarkable new technological progress. We have uh, deep fakes perpetuated by the Russian state, who's led by a former KGB colonel. Like, this is all cyberpunk. Yeah. This is all straight from a cyberpunk novel. And so, in a way, the question is, um, what do you do with cyberpunk when we're already here? Uh, it used to be a warning. It still can be. I think some of the cyberpunk writers were trying to say, if things keep going the way they do, this is where we're going to end up. This is a this is a dystopian future we want, might want to avoid. Well, we're kind of edging into that dystopian future. So cyberpunk's an interesting genre because it is more relevant than ever. But how how do you make it fresh? How do you how do you retain you don't want readers that want to hear about don't want to read science fiction to learn about the world they're already living in. You know? Yeah. They want they want a, um, they want an imagined future or an alternate reality yeah. or something like that. But Yeah. Um this is actually perfect because you brought up we're in a cyberpunk present, but what purpose can can cyberpunk serve and and, and what form does that take? So for you in particular with your with your writing how do you feel that um cyberpunk in this day and age can work on one hand as a as a enjoyable fictional narrative but on the other mm. hand commenting on the world that we're living in and hopefully projecting some uh vision of the future that can serve as both a warning for people but at the same time um present some things that are that are cool and 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 worth looking forward to uh i don't know if cyberpunk necessarily gives you things to look forward to except for some really cool tech yeah. and some cool <laughs> ideas and and uh and you know, full, full, fully simulated realities, and these type of things where we could lose ourselves in them, and uploads, and eternal life, and all that sort of stuff. So the tech, sometimes the tech in cyberpunk is cool and is something that you've daydreamed about. Anyone with any sort of uh, imagination that runs into the science fictional has thought about these things. You know, living forever as a as a as an uploaded consciousness and so forth, um, living a life uh, in a fully simulated reality. I'm sure a lot of people have thought about that. But the point of cyberpunk is it says in the same way as so much of our technology now is really cool, what we're doing is really cool, the problem is who owns it and who 
and who designs it and what the purpose is. And so inevitably, we have technologies that could be liberating, could be doing amazing things for free speech and human freedom. But they're not used that way. They're used to manipulate us and sell things to us. And they're used to control speech. us. Suppress free, suppress free speech. To, 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 uh, they're used as, um, to make us the most uh, uh, productive economic unit possible by extracting everything, every cent they can out of us possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they're destruction. I mean, I'm, I'm going back to the present. So, but in the future, oh, the future will be looking. It will have cool technologies, but inevitably, how they're being used to dehumanize us. Uh, and the thing about cyberpunk is, it's punk. It's there in the title. So, punk is anti-authoritarian. Punk is anti-elite. Punk is countercultural, and punk rebels against these systems of control that are put in place. They are rebel against these unjust societies that are coming down the road. Um, so I think it's exploring ways of, of it's how you retain. I, I've always, I've said a few times uh, during these sorts of discussions that cyberpunk is a humanist literature because we may be, it's super technical technological and we, we, you might have cybernetic implants or you might be a full upload like in Ghost in the Shell, you might have a full cybernetic body, but it's still about how we retain our humanity mm-hmm. in the face of all these dehumanizing uh, economic system and political system yeah. and, and, and the way technological progress is used. So it's a humanist literature looking at how we retain some uh, a sense of human dignity amongst all this. Now, that doesn't sound like a fun read. <laughs> so when you so when you're writing cyberpunk, uh, the thing about cyberpunk, which you know, I mean, for me, it's, I think it's always good to put some humor or try to to put some moments of humor into your stories and so forth. This is just as a uh, as a reader, I want that as well, and it humanizes um, it. Yeah, because and people, human. That's how human beings. We have very dark senses of humor, even humor even in the 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 bleakest of circumstances Mm -hmm. but um but also i think one of the things about cyberpunk is you can have these uh, dark and gritty landscapes and these philosophical uh, thoughts about the nature of the human condition and control and freedom and all that, but you also have this sexy world where there's awesome fights and awesome tech. And so, if you if, if you think about the the, the movie um, Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 anime, yeah. you've seen that? Amazing, I love that yeah. movie. Yeah, well, I do too. And that's for me, it's it's a perfect cyberpunk in a way because it's a 90 minute film that nonetheless is quite an existential movie that reflects on the nature of identity that has amazing action scenes and is a work of art, yeah? So that's, if I'm trying to write something, I'm trying to write something like that film where you have these different elements that make it readable um, but at the same time make you think. and in terms of so where cyberpunk is going, I haven't quite answered that question. Um, 
So, well, for me, cyberpunk is, of course, has to address climate change. Uh, cyberpunk has to um, it, it continue to extrapolate from the present and see where these trends are taking us, I think. I mean, you, cyberpunk doesn't have to do anything, but, I mean, and every, every author is going to do the right thing, but this is what I would have thought. If it's going to remain relevant, it has to think about all these trends and extrapolate them in an intelligent way. If we, you know, if we are going to try and sound some sort of warning about this dystopian future we're sleepwalking into, but I also think, for me, like in my fiction, I I write about, I said it in Asia, I said it in East Asia. I think about what the world will look like without America and with China as the sole superpower, and I don't. For me, I, I. I don't read enough literature that does that, you know. I think this is a really important thought experiment um, because it's easy to bag America, like very easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, and there are it's many still, good reasons to. It's still the dominant superpower and there are a lot of people that I think take that for granted, you know. Yeah. It's like, you, of course, you can, and it might you, not can, be- you can shit on America all you want, but at the same time you can say uh, all the movies mm. that I'm watching – all the a lot of like a majority of the literature that I'm reading, a lot of the global politics are are dictated to some degree by America. So there's so much influence coming from that country. But then, like you say, we 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 might not think that oh, there's this other superpower on the other side of the world. That's that's yeah. that's that has looking, a very different approach. Yeah, to- but, but could subsume the throne nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the idea, and I don't like, I take no joy in this, but the idea of an America that collapses, it's not beyond the realm of possibility, you know. So let's think about that too. So I think for my work, and you, you, I have noticed I, I do have a very, in terms of, I studied politics, I studied international relations, I'm a former aid worker, so I've, who lived, who lived in Southeast Asia. So the a geo part of what I find interesting and part of what I like writing about is sort of a hard geopolitics. What could it conceivably look like in the future? Um, of course, that's the backdrop. That's part of the world building. Yeah. Um, it's always about the characters and their journey and the things that they're put through. But in terms of the... The, what cyberpunk could have as the background world building, I think climate change is obvious. Uh, new technologies that um, uh, sort of demand our attention and that we can lose ourselves in, that's kind of obvious too. But also what's, what's, what's the geopolitical, what's the geopolitics of, these, of, a, of the world 100 years from now? Um, and how will that affect the day-to-day life? How will that affect the way technologies are used? How will that affect, yeah, and all these types of things. So, Because, because at the end of the day, government is, you know, cyberpunk has always been about um, corporations. But I think when it boils down to it, it doesn't necessarily have to be about corporations in particular. It can be about institutions of power. And that institution could take the shape of a corporation. It could take the shape of... Uh, an individual who has power over over other people, um, you know, it could be a government. It could take so many different shapes. Um, yeah, 
I mean, the the, the 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 trope in cyberpunk is the giant corporations, yeah. and it was sort of you know it, it was perfectly expressed in Blade Runner in a way. It set the template, um, and that was writers, including writers, sort of proto cyberpunk writers like Philip K. Dick, who were looking at the trends in corporate power. And you know, if you look at Google, you look at Amazon, look at um, Tesla. These, you know, it's kind of got a point. Yep. But uh, but as you were saying, it doesn't just have to be that and if you, again if you look at china china's not going to let a corporation run the show <laughs> you know that might happen in the west yeah. we might continue to see the retreat of the state uh, uh we might live in a future where everyone's on universal basic income and we there's the the corporations are are running you have private security forces and are, are, are basically running the Basically, we depend on them for the for our society to exist. Um, the sort of the, I should say, what I'm trying to say is the basic services. Yeah, that's dystopian, but it's something that a lot of writers uh, imagine. Yeah, already. But you're right. So, but going back to back, back to your point, the the this goes back to hard boiled literature even, and that looks at there's some sort of structure in place that is corrupt. It might be a government. It might be organised crime. It might be organised crime that and government are the same thing. It might be a corporation which is acting as as the mafioso. Um, that's always been there. Yeah. And I think that that will continue to be there in cyberpunk because it continues to be true of the world we're living in. Uh, and these trends are heading in that direction. Um, the I can't see any place in the world where citizens are feeling better about governance and their governments and ha- having renewed faith in their democratic systems or other systems. It's declining everywhere. So these are all cyberpunk trends. Um, yeah, I'm. Th- I'm thinking back on 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 what you said about the 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 sort of origins of cyberpunk in in hard boiled fiction and everything, and just thinking back on um on the Big Sleep, which is a fa- oh, okay. fantastic book, but it it kind of hits all these notes. But the true villainy in that in that book is is a woman who's part of a powerful family who Ooh. has a foot in in the um industrial development of Los Angeles so it's not it's, it's not necessarily that that the villain is a corporation or a government or something like that but it's just someone with a modicum of power who can manipulate things to who to their desire and the the true mm. rebellion against that from a punk perspective, even though it's in the form of a of a hardball detective, private private uh, investigator, mm. is the the passion and the desire to to uncover the mystery and solve the crime mm. and that kind of stuff. Mm. And there's an essay that you wrote on uh, punk on your blog, and you talked about the humanity of of uh of the punk aesthetic and of cyberpunk but at the end of the day it comes down to the passion 
that people have and the desire they have to change the systems that are running their lives and, and manipulating them. It's the passion and desire to push back against. Uh, yeah. So this cyberpunk and, and all and through its antecedents back to hard boiled fiction always tend to always have a protagonist, which is a so-called anti-hero. Mm-hmm. And, th- and I think they're often called that because they don't display the normal heroic characteristics. They might be, uh, they might be a drunk. They might be prone to violence. They might be, have dark tempers. They might be, um, in some ways, the goodness in them is hard to see. But what they have is a moral code uh, that is not necessarily clear immediately, but they have a code that they won't break. And they have a code that they won't break that throws them up against a system with a very different code. And so in these types of literature, sometimes people are broken by it. Sometimes they give up and sometimes they keep fighting the good fight, but almost never do they change that system. And that's why, for example, the movie Chinatown, the last line in that is, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, which is another way of saying forget it. Like, Give it up. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is the reality of this city. Yeah. And no matter what you do, he solves the mystery at the end of that. But it doesn't matter. But he doesn't solve Chinatown. He points, he, no, he's, he points out the bad guy who did it all. Yeah. Doesn't matter. That corruption goes on. So yeah, and, and you're right. So it, it 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 can be certainly represented in that in different ways. Those structures, absolutely. And and this comes up a lot in Thirty Six Streets. It also comes up a lot in Neon Leviathan. Um, although Neon Leviathan, you take so many different perspectives that you get a more. Uh, rounded nuanced uh perspective of of this future that you've created um i just wanted to quickly ask you how that short story collection uh i guess there are also some novellas in there correct uh there's 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 one novella yeah. um so how how did a couple of no- how did that all come about and uh and and take shape um yeah of course like the uh, in the collection of course there's bizarro stories too there's stories that are what does someone call it gonzo science fiction or something like this <laughs> so i have a couple of really weird things in there which are very paranoid very philip k dick yeah very is this reality am i just keep i am in i'm in another simulation and then another I'm, so you I'm, have to I'm have specifically those ones, thinking which, of the the uh the person with autism who does horse oh, yeah. betting horse race betting yeah, yeah. and then all this kind yeah. of like psychological yeah. is this reality or is it not aliens come yeah. into it and i'm just like oh man this is fucking wild but i loved it yeah 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 um yeah i i, I that that's a that was a really fun story to write um and for the viewers for your listeners it's uh it's a story about a guy who thinks he's a horse better as you say he thinks an alien has come down because this guy has OCD and, 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 and is on the spectrum. And he, he thinks that the way he walks up and down stairs, for example, and does other things, if he does it in a certain pattern, 
that aliens are watching him and that they bet on Harry or walk, how he'll walk up and down stairs, which sounds ridiculous. I know I'm trying to describe it and probably people are going, this sounds fucking stupid. What's, what's this story? And anyway, and the idea is that the alien comes down and says, well, you, you've cost me money for the way you walk up and down the stairs, so you've got to pay me back. And so this guy's like, oh, my God, is this, is this real? Um, so that is to say that the the cyberpunk is not we've been talking about it for uh like 30 minutes about in, in a very specific way but it's still a subgenre that can have a lot of different weird things inside of it. Yeah. How sorry, but your question, how did I write Neil Leviathan? I wrote Neil Leviathan. I started writing a novel when I was uh perhaps like you you are starting out as a writer. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to be a novelist. Uh. <laughs> And then I wrote three, (laughs) yeah, you know, yeah, anyone could do that. And I wrote three chapters and I thought, I have no clue how this world works. Uh, And I'm a bad writer on top of that. So the, I went back and thought, okay, I'm going to do short stories to world build. I'm going to, to figure out how my future looks. And that was the start. That was the seed in a way. But then. I ended up loving short stories. And, of course, the first few were not very good, but I ended up loving short stories and because they teach you uh, so much about writing so quickly um, because you have to learn how to introduce a character and a situation efficiently and elegantly because you've got to keep it short. You've got to set a scene, draw a, draw a picture uh, or help or help put a picture into the reader's mind like that. Mm-hmm. You can't muck around. And you're getting feedback all the time. So when you're writing a novel, you write and it takes you a year or two or five and then you go, oh, can you read this? Oh, this is shit. And you go, oh, damn. But with a short story, it's two weeks yeah. or three weeks and someone reads it and you're getting – so you're getting more feedback. You're practising these elements of story writing which are crucial. For me, I was world building at the same time. And then I started to love the form. I was never much of a short story reader. I, I, I read some, especially Philip K. Dick, but I was mainly read novels like most people. Um, but then I sort of threw myself into short story reading and writing. Um, so, it, so in answer to your question, it started with um, world building. It started for me to figure out what my world looks like. Um, and, of course, I wrote – you know, because I lived so for, for so long in Southeast Asia and because I was always been drawn to this sort of it's – an int- it's an interesting question because I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to be a writer of X and these are the reasons, you know. I, I, I'm going to write literature or I'm going to write fantasy. I just started writing in a cyberpunk world but not even as a conscious decision. Mm-hmm. It's just – You just kind of this floated is- into it naturally. Well, it's 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 it it sort of crystallizes a lot of things that I'm interested mm-hmm. in. I suppose is the best way of putting it. And you're drawn towards the 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 subgenre that maybe most reflects your interests and your passions. So, it, if if that answers the question, it started off as world building. Uh, it, there never seemed to be a question in my mind that it would be cyberpunk, uh, even though I didn't even think of it in that. I didn't even think that I didn't even think cyberpunk. Um, and at the time, and I guess this is the last element. At the time, uh, I'd taken a break from my 
work as an aid worker. I was kind of, I was kind of burnt out, and um, my son was one had just turned one. We just moved to uh, um, Vietnam. My wife was working uh, for the aid for the Australian Aid Program, so I had three years where I was not really taking a break because raising a small child is it's 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 a it's, it's, it's a, it's a t- job twenty four seven job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I used to write while he was sleeping so he would sleep for two hours in the middle of the day so when my son was asleep that was my writing time so i gave myself that three years overseas to push my writing uh craft as as far as i could and to see if i sucked or not and if i could sell some story well it is it's true and see if i could sell some stories and and then i kind of expected to go back to my career but at the end of the three years, I'd had some success in short stories anyway. Um, I'd won a couple of awards and gotten quite a few things published and loved it. And uh, so did come to writing very late, but uh, um, decided to stick with it. But, of course, I'm, you know, I'm writing in Southeast Asia, so that's going to obviously heavily bleed into the kind of stories I'm writing. And we we were speaking earlier about how you how Southeast Asia and and that part of the world is underrepresented in uh, cyberpunk, but also in fiction in general. I think, um, but then at the same time, you are creating this this fictional version of the future um, that incorporates countries and, and places that that we are familiar with, at least by name. But how do you how do you maintain that that balance? Um, because you also in Neil Leviathan include a lot about Australia. Um, how do you maintain that balance between uh, presenting readers with a vision of the future, but also one that maintains believability and relatability to our current experience? Um, I. Uh... I should say that it's it's true that there's not enough fiction that takes place in Asia, but there are a lot of great writers coming out of Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of even though well, Singapore's yeah, even though English isn't always their first language, even. Um, although it is obviously in Singapore, um, the oh, often not always it's one of the official languages anyway. But yeah, there's some amazing authors coming out of those countries. Um, but the question was, how do I maintain the believability of, of my setting? What do you mean? In in the sense that what do you mean in, by that? In the sense that it's a world that we that we know it's our world, but you're creating this futuristic version of it ah. how do you how do you maintain the believability that this is a world mm. that we know but at the same time introducing all of these oh okay themes yeah, and technologies it, and everything yeah i try i mean i do try to everything i do all my um all my writing is i try to have uh that i think it's the margaret atwood definition of speculative fiction with which is an extrapolation from the present. So I want 
pretty much everything I, is not that I think it will happen, but I think, is this credible? Could things develop in this way politically in this part of the world, but also tech, with technology? So some stuff is kind of obvious, I think, um, like uh, what's renewable energy going to look like in 90 years? I, I, I think we have – it's not – that's not a huge imaginative leap, for mm-hmm. example. I think the idea that instead of having a smartphone here, we'll have a smartphone in our brain, don't think that's a giant leap of the imagination. Yeah. I, think that, uh, I think that the hardest bits that I've done are getting the future geopolitics right and getting some of the, the, the science of memory right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as you would have seen that I have, I have something of an obsession with memory in my short stories and, and the novel. Mm-hmm. But even that, even though it's a lot of a, it's a lot of stuff that's a bit of a, a, a trope in some cyberpunk, which is memory wipes and memory implants and all this, I've gone back to the – I've tried to extrapolate from the science of it. Like I've read – I'm not – into science, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a one of those hard science fiction geeks yeah. and I love formulas, none of, none of that. But I found books, uh, non-fiction stuff about the science of memory quite fascinating. And so even, for example, um, experiments that, they, that, that, that have been done in recent years, as, as, as recently as in the last year I've been reading about, on removing trauma. And they do it on rats, of course, poor rats. They have everything done to them. But it's seeing whether you can move traumatic memories from a brain. This is in the realm of science. So that's in the um, in the book and in the short story collection. But And so it's all those memory wipes and all that. I try to make that as, um, what's the word, believable as possible. And then there's the question of... Of course, if you set, I mean, a lot of the stuff I do write is set in Australia, but, and you can assume that I understand my own country reasonably well, but for a country like Vietnam, I've li- I lived there for, for many years. I, st- I studied in my PhD. I immersed myself in its film and literature. I also did some part of my master's on it as well. So, um, and on top of all of that, I have a lot of Vietnamese friends who who can also read my work and so getting that part right is maybe the hardest of everything mm-hmm. um um but it's also by far the most satisfying when you do get it right um so it does feel like the thing is and this is where the short story world building matters i think is that if you Build your world and build your world and build your world, and you know it better and better and better. You get these, you accrete these layers, and so when a reader comes into it, it feels lived in, and it feels they can smell it, and they can taste it, and they can see it, and you don't have you don't have to worry about that dimension of of failing in a novel. It, <laughs> if, if nothing else, it'll be believable yeah. and immersive. You know. So I think that getting that, uh, uh, and, and of course, in the future, you think about how cultures will change, Australia culture, but cultures, other cultures, Vietnamese culture, but you think also what will stay the same. Um, you think about what 
what things in history, and this is part of 36 Streets, is history repeats itself, even if the setting is very different, but and even if the technology is very different. How does history repeat itself? Exactly. And how is that expressed? So, um, and it's interesting with 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 depends on the the fiction the the genre fiction you want to write because if you're doing space opera and say high fantasy, epic fantasy, um, no one's going to say you do have to work really hard to get the world right, but no one's no one's going to say this isn't an authentic culture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, they could. They'll say this doesn't feel really fleshed out. Yeah. But if you say, if it's just some made up thing, I'm sure you're drawing on different influences. But if you're setting it in this world, there's direct comparison. Um, yeah. People are going to go, people can look and say, well, that that's not going to happen or that's not how someone would behave. Or so you have to, I think you really have to be quite precise um, and thoughtful when you build it. And again, this is why I think short stories are useful because. Mm-hmm. You do so much thinking over so many years of 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 evolving that world. And in your case, you had you had direct experience in Vietnam while you were writing Neon Leviathan, and then you set Thirty Six Streets in Hanoi. And so, for you, what is it that you wanted to? Um, because this experience that you had in vietnam was your experience and it's not the vietnam vietnamese experience so what what, no. what did you want to share with readers um about your experience in vietnam through uh the details that you included in neon leviathan including uh war refugees and and situations like that um and then in 36 streets more directly with um having it set in Vietnam, but then also delving so deeply into the history of the Vietnam War and how history repeats itself and through the VR experience of uh fat victory. Um hmm. which <laughs> we can we can we can delve in, in, into that a little bit later, but if you want to sure. Yeah. Uh the the thing about Cyberpunk is you are almost always have a protagonist which is an outsider, yeah, and they are alienated from society through one way or another. It could be alcohol addiction or, or addiction, drug addiction. It could be that they've never belonged. It could be because of their geographic identity. It could be because of their class. It could be because of mental illness. It could be a whole range of reasons, maybe all of them at once. Right. But the thing about writing an outsider is you're not claiming an authentic experience of any one particular country. And so if 36 Streets is the most obvious example, the, the character grew up in Australia but was never accepted there but is of Vietnamese heritage but was never accepted there either. So she's always the outsider. So when and that was very deliberate choice, partly because that's what you have in Cyberpunk, but also because, for me anyway, you don't necessarily want to say this is the experience of a person from that country. You know what I mean? And it's not that sort of novel in any way. It's about it's about her experience as an outsider. Um, 
so, so what was so I've, I've drifted from the question a little bit, but so what was it again? It was the so how 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 these specifically thirty six streets, but also elements of Neon Leviathan, how that reflects on your lived experience of Vietnam, and and what you uh, want to say about that. Uh well, my, I mean, obviously, I lived in. Hanoi, which, and then another name for Hanoi is the 36 Streets. So I lived there for three years. So I have that experience. Um, and, you know, you, you, of course, when you're a writer, you do draw on personal experiences, but you also draw on complete uh, leaps of the imagination as well. But I was an aid worker for, you know, a very long time. So I saw a lot of things in that profession. Um, and a lot of the, the darker part of the reality of that part of the world. Um, the In terms of the character, I do think she was, even though she, the main character of the novel, for example, is very different from me, of course, in nearly every way. She do, did grow up in a very rough working class life in Australia, which I know about. So I can have part of her character, which is true, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of the other things of her parts of her can grow from that truth at the core. In terms of um, Vietnam, it's the, it's, it's the, a lot of the ideas I had about war there and how that society has dealt with war. have come from Vietnamese people through their literature or through the people I've been friends with and talking to them about the ideas in the book and them saying, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Um, um, and, but it's also, again, it's also not, it's also broader themes about suppression of memory. It happens in, there, there, there are many countries where certain mem- collective memories are suppressed certain collective parts are denied, and this has always been so, although it is more true in some countries than others. And this is these are ideas that go to Orwell. These are also the ideas in cyberpunk with Orwell and manipul- controlling the past in 1984, but also in cyberpunk and manipulating memory and changing identity and denying the truth of where we came from. So I think... Um, but you know the decision to write about Vietnam is, you know, it was. It's a country that I know very well and I love, and and spent many many years studying and living in, and so it's a passion, and not a fleeting one. It's one that I've been been thinking about for years and years now, um, and if you want to think about what a future is with China as a superpower, for example, is just one example. Vietnam is a very important country to understand how they would fare in that situation. They've had, they were occupied by China for a thousand years. Not many people know this. Um, they had a border war with China after the Americans left, after the Vietnam War. Not many people know this. Um, so, yeah, it's a, and it's it's a truly fascinating country with a fascinating history, um, uh, and I suppose it's the, from the perspective of of China uh, from Vietnam is is the, is the way history repeats itself. 
and, and the way that Vietnam has been a pawn of empires, whether it's the American Empire, French, Japanese for a short time, and of course China. Yeah. And so this is very much has been pushed and pulled between these great powers for so long, um, which makes it it's a fascinating country anyway, but in terms of writing it in a in a story, it's 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 kind of a, it's a perfect setting because it is again if we're looking at it, if cyberpunk is asking these questions of of power and the marginalized and um and including things like colonialism and imperialism which are certainly subjects that are pertinent to cyberpunk i mean vietnam mm-hmm. is a perfect setting i think yeah and on top of that you have so many ways of pulling in different uh thematic elements from Neon Leviathan into 36 Streets, there is this um, this unifying element where you have themes of memory paired with war and trauma and PTSD. You also have things like um, immigration and identity, which play very prominent roles in, in explaining both the world, world building, but also giving more depth to the characters themselves. Mm. And then... On top of that, you have uh, extrapolations of technology, but also the the side effects of that. You know, with video games mm. and virtual reality, come addiction and and in the case of Thirty Six Streets, there's actually trauma through interactions with virtual reality, even mm. if it's not yeah. specifically lived trauma in, yeah. in in a in a physical sense. It's still it's still inflicted upon this character. But then you also have more human elements, which I really love in both 36 streets and in, um, and in neon Leviathan, where you have genuine friendships and relationships with family that, that Hmm. play prominent roles. I'm thinking about neon Leviathan. There's a, uh, Jack's fine dining, which is a very nice, uh, it's a very nice palate cleanser in a sense where, you know, amidst all the the uh, brutality of this world, you can have genuine, heartfelt moments, even mm. if it's not real family, but found family in the form of a a community, uh, yeah, soup soup uh, hall kind of thing. Yeah, the soup kitchen. You do. You're soup right. Kitchen. You do need. Yeah. You, you do need the. Uh, that's that's the tricky thing, and this is with this sort of fiction is you do have to have those human moments and you have to have moments of joy and you have to have um, these friendships and so forth, partly partly to, because it's not much fun to read if it doesn't have all these things. But <laughs> exactly. also because this is about stakes and this is about what we're fighting for, mm-hmm. you know. It's interesting. Jack's Fine Dining is an interesting one because it's very near future. It's only 10 of – it's one of the, the – it's in that – book it's only 20 years from now whereas nearly everything else is 80 or 100 but that was funny because i i uh, i wrote that i rarely ever write for themes you know where it says uh, a short story competition comes out and they have a theme but i wrote that for a, a theme short story and it and it had to have a positive ending <laughs> <laughs> um which i'm not very used to to doing um and I didn't go very well on that competition, but I loved that short story. Um, 
And it was weird because I had, it's really interesting, I had a lot of trouble selling it. And I think partly because the science fiction elements in that particular one are so slight. Um, it's it's very much not about technology. It's about this, as you say, this this found family. Um, and so I couldn't sell it, but then I put it in, it's, so it became a new story for the collection. But then it got nominated for an Aurealis Award. So it was, it was, you know, clearly, yeah, I got I got a lucky panel of judges, perhaps who, who were perhaps thinking similar to you, because um, it's very much a story of character and hope, yeah, and as you say, family, and 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 it also ties really nicely into the world that you built because there are. Um, these interconnected elements that that fit perfectly in terms of immigration, in terms of uh, mm. identity, fitting into a culture that's not necessarily yours, but then finding people that you connect with and um, being able to share, even if it's just a tidbit about the the trauma or the the, the horrors from your past, and mm. and realizing that that doesn't necessarily define you. Because mm. there is there is so much more to you than than just that um that traumatic experience that you had or, or or what have you and and just being able to embrace the fact that that people can accept each other and um and love what they're what they're doing, whether it takes the shape of cooking kick ass food in a in a community soup kitchen or mm. whatever form it takes, you know. And then at the same time, you have, uh, I, I wanted to dig a little bit into memory because this is something that comes up heavily in 36 streets and, and is persistent throughout Neon Leviathan. Uh, you have this device called the Kendall U uh, machine, Kendall U device, direct reference to, or not direct reference, but like an allusion to the, the Voigtkampf of later yes. i imagine, in terms of yeah. the name. But the, but the form it takes and the, and the way that you have this a technological device that um, the repercussions of it take so many different forms, whether it's taking memories away or implanting false memories. Um, And then, and then in the case of 36 streets, you have the main character Lynn who has uh, the arrives at this point where they, they consciously make the decision to take memories away in order to, um, narrow down the focus of their of their life what what is it about memories that that fascinates you so much and how did the kendall you machine come about and how did you approach 36 streets from that perspective um the, well the i mean i think science fiction can it does it's not doesn't break into these neat categories but science fiction can be about um kind of techno-utopia where you are looking at all those marvellous things technology can bring. And I think from my perspective, I've always, I've almost you could almost call me a technophobe. Like I, when there's a new technology comes out and they say, look at this great new thing we have. I always, my first thought is, well, how's that going to exploit us? Or <laughs> who's, who's going to become redundant now because of this fabulous new idea you've got? Right, right. Uh, when are they going to strap a gun to that and fly it in the air, you know? Um, like there was this, there, <laughs> there was this. Um, I forget the specific company, but there was this 
tweet going around of this one of these robot dogs with a gun on its back. Oh god! Um, <laughs> recently, and they're like, oh, and someone said, look what they're doing. They put a gun on the back of this robot dog, and I thought. They were always going to do that. It was yeah. the one thing in their brain. Yeah. Let's have a so from the from uh, the get go. This was a military application. Yeah. <laughs> so it's for me. I, I always I think it's to explore and to in a way warn about the how will this be exploited. Um. Now the question of memory is partly it's a um. I mean, I find it fascinating. In some ways, I'm drawn to it time and time again, and I, maybe I don't even know why, but it's recurrent. If you think about um, Blade Runner, which we've talked about, and if you think about Ghost in the Shell, in Blade Runner, the most valuable thing for these replicants are their memories, even if they're false. Uh, I should say, oh, no, that's that's for Ghost in the Shell. They They have false memories, but they want to hold on to the actual memories they have as totems of their human identity. Right. Uh, and, of course, Rachel does have the false memories, but – and so her question is, does this still make me not – well, does it still make me human? Do I still have a right to live even if I've got false memories? Yeah. And then or, you or have does, ghosts- it, does, it make her, does it make her alive in a sense, whatever form that, yeah. that takes? Yeah. And in Ghost in the Shell, Major Matoko, she – doesn't even know if her memories are her own and every memory she forms while she works for the for this police force she doesn't own those memories either she doesn't own her body or her memories she's just got a little bit of her brain left and everything else is cybernetic and so the question is about memory is that this is something that is that makes us human and this is something that is almost kind of our soul in a way. It's everything we are, except as I say in the book, everything save the thin edge of the present. Mm-hmm. We're built on all these memories. Um, and so therefore, if you can get a technology that can erase, manipulate memories, what does that do to the human condition? So this is one of the, the questions of the perennial questions of science fiction of what it means to be human. And that's one of the best means to ask about that. But it's also like in the first story of Neon Leviathan, the, the, and this is, again, this, I got this from an, an actual experiment that scientists are conducting in the world today, which is can we delete PTSD, for example? So here's an example of something that you can, that they're doing experiments on now. Can you erase a traumatic experience? And we're, our technology is heading in that direction. PTSD is an interest, uh, something that I've, I have an enduring interest in from when I worked in aid. It's, a, it's an industry where it's a profession where there's a lot of the people who work in it have PTSD because they, they encounter some pretty um, intense experiences um, and see some pretty messed up things. So the question is, if we could delete a traumatic experience, um, should we? Right. If we delete it, does that change who we are? Is a traumatic experience a central part, not a central part, but an integral part of, of who we are, of who I am, of who a character is? Um, and so I think this is an important philosophical question, but it's an important ethical one. Like we, we if we have the power to do this, should we? Now, of course, that's the best use of 
a memory technology is a, a therapeutic removal of trauma. Of course, as I said, as I was saying, I always think about what's the worst thing someone could do with this technology, and that is in the novel 36 Streets, you see they have this power to, to manipulate memory. Well, how are they going to use it? And so I come back to it time and again partly because I just am drawn to it, whether I, whether I like it or not, partly because it, it goes it, it go to that core question of what it means to be human. And science fiction, I think some of the best science fiction wrestles with this question. And and um, for me, it's it's I, I find it a fascinating to, to a thought experiment and to to read about it and to write about it mm-hmm. um, because really it's a deeply philosophical question uh, at the same time. And on on top of just doing an exploration of individual memory, you also delve a lot into collective consciousness, collective memory, collective trauma, especially for a country like Vietnam, where there is such a pertinent underlayer of collective trauma from the Vietnam War. And then in the future that you create, there's the repetition of history. And now China is posing this this threat of um, colonization. They're occupying this uh, section of Vietnam. And so there's this compounding of trauma and compounding of um what the collective memory and identity of vietnam is and then have that sort of diffuse throughout the world building and then on top of that have the layer of individual memory in the case of lynn in 36 streets and then you even have some some short stories in um in neon leviathan that deal a lot with uh, with memory directly. Uh, there's one short story. I can't remember the name exactly. I'm just going to check really quick, but it's, uh, a character who's selling off his memories as a get rich quick scheme. Oh, a strange loop. Yeah. A strange loop. And, and, and what that means, because it's not even necessarily that they're selling their memories or getting rid of their memories based on a traumatic experience, but rather as a get rich, get rich quick scheme. Uh, and they're selling off good memories too. And and what does that mean for that that individual and um what uh what the the fallout of that is with their their self identity but also their relationship with other people. Yeah. Um so there's a few questions in there, but yeah, um, I, I rambled but, uh, for a little bit, but we'll hone in on the, the balance between collective uh, memory and, I guess, yeah. individual memory. So Ishiguro, Ishiguro is one of my favorite authors, and, and, and I didn't say that in my uh, when we were talking about influences very early on, but he's maybe my favorite living author. And his last three books have been genre fiction too, uh, science fiction, science fiction, fantasy but he and he always talks about this issue this he not always but he often thinks about memory and uh flawed memory and he thinks about the way we kind of fool ourselves um how we're unreliable narrators in our own lives but one of the things in he looks at in the in the buried giant is the question of can a collective memory be so traumatic we must keep it buried if we remember this past Will it just lead us into a bloody future of retribution? And that's an interesting moral question. I think that the question of collective memory is interesting both in as as a metaphor 
as a science fictional concept of um, the way populations are manipulated, um, the way myth-making is part of the modern state, of course, um, the way we choose to remember history in certain ways. So there's and there's and and through science fiction, of course, you can explore those things even easier in some ways because you have technology that can make you can do certain things to a population with you know with speculative technology. But it's also this idea of collective memory is fascinating in the world today. If you take as one example in China, um, there's a very good book on China by a, a, an academic called Louisa Lim called the, um, the People's Republic of Amnesia. And it talks about how Tiananmen Square, for example, has been c- completely wiped. But it's not just wiped from the history books. It's, it's wiped in a way where even people who do remember it are given all these incentives just to forget it and just to let it go. And so it talks about a type of forgetting which is chosen. Something isn't remembered anymore. Something is a, a, a date or a loved one, and it slowly fades away in time. And so it's this question of you, uh, a state in this case, can be so powerful in a very Orwellian way, collectively shape the memories of a population. Mm. So I think this is a really important, another important question for science fiction is what are the implications of that? What if we can manipulate the memories of population? What what sort of power inherent is is there in that? And what are the implications for society? <laughs> what are the implications for um, for? I would say the human experience. Yeah, even. yeah, for the human experience. Because because um, it, it also depends on what, what form that memory manipulation takes. Because like you say, it could mm. be forced upon somebody. It could be chosen. Uh, sometimes mm. it could be, you know, um, give, give that person a reward in order to purposefully suppress that memory to the point that it, it drifts into the echoes of, of the unconscious. So mm. there are so many different forms that it that it that it can take, and and science fiction is, like you say, the perfect avenue to explore that idea and and how technology intersects with that, but also how institutions enforce enforce the their will upon the population. There's a fascinating story in in Louisa Lim talk, talks about in this in the uh, uh, People's Republic of Amnesia. Uh, where there was a mother who kept going to the place where her son died, uh, a grandmother by now, um, where her son had died in the Tiananmen Square massacre. And there was a place, the other student said he died at this spot. And so she would go and lay flowers there. And the police kept telling her, you, c- you can't go there. You've got to stop remembering it. And they eventually put a CCT camera up for that spot to watch for one person to go remember a loved one. Ugh. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing, the effort to, to scrub this from history. And so that's, you know, I believe the story. It's a very credible academic. Um, it, I think it's a fascinating and telling story. Um, and so 
in fact, I think that even that that one example might have made it into one of to to one of my novel, uh, to one of my short stories actually. Um, so yeah, and and the powerful institutions have a lot invested at at shaping memory and shaping the way we think about the past and therefore ourselves. So yeah, I mean yeah, it's another thing. Obviously, I've been drawn towards. Mm-hmm. And then even now, I I recently watched an interview. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, a writer named Johan Hari. That um, sounds. I'm not gonna. He look he's written. I don't want my computer to crash again. Yeah, he's written. Uh, he's written some books on addiction uh, and connection and things like that. But he has a new book that's. I think it's out or it's coming out um, on uh, attention and how a lot of the uh, a lot of the platforms that we're using, um, whether it's Google or Wikipedia, uh, Instagram, all the different social media platforms, Twitter are subtly shifting our uh our mind's ability to pay attention to things in which case it then affects our ability to form lasting memories because hmm. our rapid frenetic uh absurd pace of of attention where you can't really hold on to one particular thing for for very long um, doesn't allow our brain to develop the the permanent memories of those situations and those circumstances. What's this? What's this guy's not last name? Sorry, uh, Hari H A R I. And so, oh, I might and, have one. And so, this uh, this yeah. essentially attention deficit turns into a memory deficit, where we rely more heavily on something like Wikipedia or Google in order to retain information as opposed to relying on our own brains. And so that's actually manipulating yeah. the biology of our own brains. Yeah, so. we have, we, th- there's, there's a phenomenon called cognitive offloading. And that is where you no longer need to think certain things yep. because you have a smartphone. Yep. And you can just go, you don't need to remember certain things anymore. And you don't even have to use recall to bring something back into your brain. And so exactly. the current th- debate in science is, we know it has a short-term effect on our memory, and we know it's negative. We know it has a short-term effect on our tension span, and we know it's bad. Yeah. The question in, in science is, is this long-term changing our brains? And there's exactly. some people who argue that it is. I had a, I, I, it's interesting you bring it up because I had a, a debate today on, on social media, and it was a proper debate. It wasn't an argument, but someone said, um, everyone says... They, it was this question, and so they said, everyone says that with every new technology, uh, comic books, TV, blah, uh, it's all the same. You know, we're always fear of the new. And I, and I wrote back and I said, but here are, the, here are the peer-reviewed studies that show that this is actually true and this is the current debate. And they're like, nah, I don't feel that that's right. You know those debates <laughs> where you give someone the evidence and they have their feelings? Yeah, um, yeah. When you say I feel, it's like, no, that's not an argument. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but no, this is a really important question. This is something that I've thought about a lot. And the human, bi- human mind is a, an amazing thing. It is malleable. But it can be changed in ways that, as I said, where we bite our attention spans can be reduced and where but it's it's more than that we this is also a forum that's very addictive and so because we get 
Social media is one example where we get a lot of endorphin hits when we use it. But these big companies have got what's called attention engineers, which is a, a kind of a fascinating title. But these attention engineers, among other things, have researched gambling addiction in Vegas and how to keep people stuck on this for their attention. The longer you have someone's attention, the more money you can make out of them, among other things. Yeah. Attention, so, attention is the most profitable currency in the social media age. Yeah. 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 And one of the things, this is just one example, is we get our likes, say, on Facebook or on uh, Twitter. They ration those out. You might get all your likes in one go, but they will ration those out over several hours. That's part of the program. Why? Because they studied rats <laughs> and they saw this is this famous study where a rat, if you have a, a button and a pellet comes out, the rat will eat and then he'll get bored, he'll go and eat the, the pellet when, he, when he's hungry. If you have the rat, it, the pellet never comes out, you'll get bored and you won't press the button anymore. But if it's inconsistent, if the pellet only comes out sometimes, the rat will hit that fucking button all day long. <laughs> So what they're trying to do, we're rats in this experiment where they ration out our likes. This is just one actually pretty crude example out of much more sophisticated ones of getting our attention and making yeah. us addicted and getting that endorphin rush when someone likes the stupid observation we made on some my, fucking television show. That minute show dopamine just hit that we get. Yeah. And the thing is, these we are bred, we our brain is geared towards these dopamine hits and so we do become addicted because this medium, aside from the likes in we get on social media, it has actual gambling. It's got porn. It's got shopping. It's got everything you want, um, and it is an incredibly it is incredibly addictive. But yeah, the attention economy is the most profitable economy, as you were saying. Um, and so, uh, I mean, among everything else. <laughs> writers have to battle that as well you know yeah and then and then it comes back and and fucks with our memory and in, in ways that we at this current moment can't really comprehend because it just feels like yeah. um a, like you 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 mentioned earlier it's kind of like the slow drift into into uh i'm, I'm paraphrasing slow drift into normalcy it just becomes habitual and and that's the most insidious form of dystopia is something that becomes habitual yeah, I mean, we we what's habitual is we are willingly surveilled, mm. and we sign up to being scrutinized by these giant companies who take all this data from us, and we don't even know the half of it. But that's commonplace. This is commonplace now. Um, in terms, but what you were saying, I agree. I agree that one of the things I, I'm, in, I'm interested in exploring in my fiction is the way technology does change our brains and. Mm. And, and the way we think and the way we interact. Yeah. Um, we have, we've always had, ex, we've had exo memory for a very long time. A book is an exo memory because we can't remember everything, but we have these stories in here. And so these become something we can rely on. But now this is our exo memory, our smartphones, mm. and it's replacing our cognitive functions. Um, some of them, as I said, cognitive offloading. And the question is whether this is changing our brains long term. And very credible scientists are saying yes. I mean, I think it's still something that is um, 
being debated and something that is being explored. But yeah, I, I think what we we of course know that 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 social media causes depression and anxiety. We that we know. Um, we know that it causes polarization. Um, we know that it makes civil conversation very difficult. We know that it makes convers- uh, cooperation very difficult, and we know that it it spreads disinformation. Um, as again, always had disinformation in our societies, but the way that it can spread now and penetrate uh, into so many different households and so many different countries is just truly extraordinary. Yeah, and, and uh, I don't want to be too depressing. We, we don't. We don't <laughs> no, I mean it's fair. I mean these are these are themes that we've that we've been touching on, and the thing is we don't know the full extent of it, and and things like uh, fiction and and your book and your work are ways in which you personally can explore these ideas, and your readers will then in turn be introduced to things that that work as uh, as fuel for the mind. In order to yeah approach the future with with a little bit more um, conscious thought, I guess yeah. And, but the last thought on that is, I, I agree. The last thought on that is that where this is an experiment, these smartphones, these these mm. these algorithms. We, we are the, we are the rats right now. <laughs> we are the rats, and but but I'm not just saying that to as a throwaway line, like. Former executives from Silicon Valley are coming out and saying we are running an experiment on the population, and we actually don't know where we're going to end up. Exactly. You know. Yeah, I mean it's a uh, it's terrifying, <laughs> but I feel I feel I feel that a lot of people are blissfully we're feel. yeah we're blissfully ignorant of of what the. The ramifications are of being a participant in this because uh, it's so convenient it is so convenient exactly. and yeah. convenience trumps so much like the the idea of the the quick endorphin hit replacing so much of activity so mm. uh so short-term endorphin hits are replacing the long-term ones what's a long-term endorphin hit relationship reading a book doing exercise writing like, a book these yeah. things oh my god <laughs> that's very that 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 gratification is delayed forever yeah <laughs> well maybe not we'll see we'll see um sorry keep going we've been we've been we've been touching on the future and i i wanted to ask you what the future holds for you if uh if you've got some more short stories in store or another novel uh, oh, place. I've always got short stories. Always got short stories running uh, in the works and getting rejected in one place or another. <laughs> but um, wh- it, I've got in front of me right now, actually, the next novel. It's on my um, stand here. And the the thing is, we never quite. I never quite answered why I wrote Thirty Six Streets, but I wrote Thirty Six Streets because I'd written a failed novel where Lynn was a character. But not the main character. Yeah, and I was so interested in her. I went. The novel was five years in the future. I went five years back and thought, "Oh, how did Lynn become the woman she is? Mm. She becomes at the end of the book." Right. Well, I went back and read that novel. It's called The Escher Man. My Twitter handle is The Escher Man. The Escher Man got an agent a few years ago. Um, it, the agent. 
loved it. He said, "Oh, this is going to, this is going to be a bestseller." Blah blah blah. It didn't sell. I had a huge falling out with the agent. The book never got published. Right. I went back and read it last week or the week before. I thought, actually, this is a really. I thought I thought I wasn't going to like it. I thought, oh, it. I thought that. Um, you know, my writing wouldn't be very good and I'd be a bit embarrassing. But I reread it and I thought, actually, this is really good. The first third needs some revision, but I think I can resuscitate the fortunes of this novel. So I'm doing that now. Um, and if 36 Streets is successful, I think this novel will, might see the, the light of day. And it is a um, continuation of Lynn's story, correct? Well, no. See, I wrote it as a standalone. A, I wrote it as a standalone with a different protagonist and it starts in Macau, although Vietnam ends up being part of it. But Lynn's the antagonist. Oh, wow. Mostly. And then, <laughs> and so it's a completely standalone novel that I, the same way 36 Streets is, but in a way, yeah, it is. If you're curious about what happens five years after the end of 36 Streets, this novel tells that story. Now, again, like I said, a standalone, it's not a sequel. Uh, it was written as a, as a standalone novel with a different protagonist. But um, so that's, anyway, that's what I'm working on. Um, it, it, it might fail. You have to expect that. I've had, I had two failed novels before The Escher Man and then before 36 Streets um, that, that I wouldn't even send to an agent. That was, that were those, they were that bad. Um, uh, and then, you know, I have other novels. Uh, I have a third, a, another novel called Howling Metal, which is a, a draft has been written. It is, again, set in, set in the same world but with, with different characters, but it's in about the same timeline as 36 Street. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of minor characters crossover. Yeah. Um, that's done. It's a, it's, it's a mess uh, and I that's hate it. For. And I don't want to look. <laughs> I hate it at the moment. I just hate this novel. Um, among other things, I put a bunch of music in it, and I've just discovered how if you got for your if your listeners have last this lasted this long, don't put lots of songs in a novel because you'll copyright it, is a bitch. It costs too much. It's just yeah. So I did. I made that mistake, um, and I've started two. And there are the two other novels. One's a time travel novel, which may or may not be written, and one is a fantasy novel, which may or may not be written. But that's. What I procrastinate by world building a new novel. So instead of doing the writing the novel I'm meant to be writing, I start yeah. doing the background of a new one. You're falling into the trap. Don't don't go there. <laughs> yeah. That is a trap. Having like ten beginnings of a novel, that is a trap. But I have two. I have two beginnings of two different novels. That that's all right. That's all right. Cool. I'm excited uh, to see hopefully the Usher Man comes to comes to fruition and, and uh, gets published. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Like, it's always a fine line. Like, if, if, if 36 Streets doesn't go well, my sort of – I have to change my writer name and then start writing in a different <laughs> genre, basically. Or you could Which just do what, a lot of other you, writers. Yeah, you could just do what Richard K. Morgan did and just drop the K for fantasy. <laughs> oh, yeah, but he's, he's – you know, well, Richard Morgan, he gets his million dollar advance, million dollar option for altered carbon. Yeah. Gets to, gets to become a full time writer. Bastard. 
But fortunately, he likes my stuff and keeps saying nice things about my uh, my books and my short stories and so forth. Yeah. So that's nice. He's in my corner. You get you get good you get good blurbs to put on the on the covers. Yeah, great blurb from him. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, we'll uh, we'll close out if uh, you can share with listeners and viewers what you're currently reading or watching, or in the case of copyrighted music, what you're listening to. I am. <laughs> I listen to. I'm reading the left-handed booksellers of London by Garth Nix, which is a fantasy novel by an Australian Australian um, writer. But you know, he sold millions and millions of copies. And I just finished uh, Megan Abbott. Uh, this song is you, which is a hard-boiled modern hard-boiled novel. It's just a few years old. She's a she writes old-school hard-boiled fiction, but with tends to have female protagonists, unlike the old hard-boiled fiction. So she's a very good American writer. Uh, and what I listen to, I, I I listen to, I try to get soundtracks to the um the short stories or the novels that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to have a music theme that that plays over and over. Um. Uh, but yeah, actually, what did I, f- I found some bloody, this is a very obscure artist called Zombie Nick and he writes this Zombie. cyberpunk, yeah, <laughs> he writes this cyberpunk theme kind of music that I sometimes play in the background. Yeah. Um, a couple of his, a couple of his songs are very good, but, uh, uh I, I wouldn't. You can come to me for for literary taste, but I wouldn't come to me for musical taste. So. <laughs> That's all good. I'm actually kind of curious to check out Zombie Nick at this point. So, <laughs> well, listen to Zombie Nick, Dead by Dawn. It's actually it's pretty right. cool cyberpunk song. Right on. And uh, if you could share with uh, the listeners and viewers where to find you on social media or your website, but also where they can pick up Neon Leviathan and Thirty Six Streets. My website is Napper Time www.nappertime.com. Uh, as I said, my handle on Twitter is the Escher Man. Um, and where to pick up my book, I think. it's I've got on my website, I've got all the places that you can order it. Um, hopefully it will be – I mean, it's coming out in the US, UK, Australia. Um, so if you want to – on my website, I have all the places you can buy it. Um, it's still got all the, the pre-order list at the moment, but it's all the usual places, you know, Amazon, of course, but everyone else. Um, it's meant to be coming out in bookstores. Um, but, yeah, if you go to my website, all the information is there. Awesome, man. Well, TR, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. And I love cyberpunk, and I'm so happy we got to dig into, into that subgenre and uh, explore your, your books. have it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with T.R. Napper. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot and we greatly appreciate it. You can follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFF Addicts Pod for updates and more, or shoot us an email at sffaddictspod at gmail.com. You can also follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson.
SFF Addicts is part of fanfiaddict.com, so make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash S-T-R-O-N-O-Z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts. Mm-hmm.